The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. Look with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word, the Second Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. Now I'm going to be reading not a whole lot of scripture, but some scripture, three texts, and there's a little bit of length to it in order to gain the information we need to make some distillations and observations out of the biographical study of Nathan the prophet, as he is called in the Bible. And uh, so we are going to take a look at that. And I'll start with this text. And then kind of work us through the other two texts as well. So there's three key texts. It's not exhaustive, but three key texts. Second Samuel chapter 7, and um, slip down to verse 1. Now, by the way, one of the clues that you want to listen pretty carefully to this and try to find out about Nathan's life is uh, Nathan has some pretty direct converse, uh, confrontations um, with, as you're going to see, uh, David, a powerful king, a man that could have his life at any time, as he had already proven concerning Uriah. And yet Nathan had the courage to be a prophet in his life. What kind of interests me is after he deals with him and he deals with him in Bathsheba and he deals with him and his lack of attention to following out God's line of succession um, and um, and all of that. But what's interesting is, is that David so much appreciated him that one of his sons was named after Nathan with Bathsheba. It's really interesting, this relationship between Nathan and King David. And one of the key moments starts right here in Second Samuel chapter 7. Let's look at a moment about David. Now, verse 1, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling and all in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus says, therefore, there, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly." From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. 
but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. Nathan then spoke to David. And so God then deals with Nathan through uh, God deals with Nathan and then God deals with David through Nathan. And then if you want to go on further in the study of this text and you'll find it interesting for our own purposes at another time, perhaps you can finish out chapter seven. So let's start with Nathan. Who is he and where does he come from? So what about his origin? Uh, Where does Nathan come from? His origin. Well, let me uh, suggest to you, we don't really know. We don't have enough information about his background to be able to make those statements. But here's what we do know. He has been called, anointed and ordained as a prophet in Israel. He is not the first, but he is one of the first prophets that come before us, that set before us the prototype of what prophets are to be in Israel. This is one of the great studies that I had the privilege to do because I knew what was coming in my ordination. One of the questions in my ordination was name the prophets, name all the kings, name all the dynasties and tell us what dynasties and kings and kingdoms and what kings each prophet ministered to. And of course, one of the first ones I began with was Nathan, who would minister to King David with an overflow to Solomon. There are three offices in the Old Testament that prefigure and anticipate the Messiah's ministry, the Messiah, the anointed one. The three anointed offices in the Old Testament are prophet, priest and king. And then one of the things that we are about to find out is that David, who is king and David, when it comes to king, becomes the premier type of Jesus as king. He is of the tribe of Judah, as the prophecy through uh, Jacob had established that the scepter would not leave Judah, that Judah would be the tribe of the kings. There was the step of the apostle Paul, I mean, possible, the step of Saul from uh, the tribe of Benjamin. But now we find out he has been put aside by the hand of God. And now the fulfillment of God's promise to Judah that the scepter would be placed in that tribe has come through David. And it will continue to David's son, Solomon. So as it continues to David's son, Solomon, ultimately, God's covenant with David is pointing to one that will come through this line of David and Solomon, who will be greater than Solomon And this one will be the one who sets up God's covenant with his people forever, establishing a forever kingdom, as you just heard from the text. From your throne, your throne, David, will be established forever. So what happens is, is that Nathan, this prophet, is now serving David. David, of course, has been under assault, and you can follow all of the history of Saul to David to this point as you work through First Samuel and as you work through the second as you work through Second Samuel, Second First Samuel with focus upon Saul and the rise of David, Second Samuel with the focus upon David himself. Now, what's a, what seems to be abundantly clear is that Nathan is not only a prophet preacher. He is also a prophet pastor. He is also a prophet advisor. He is also a prophet counselor. He is also, and you're going to see this as we work through the three texts. He is also a prophet author. It is David. uh, It is um, these books that bear the oversight of Samuel were originally together. And it seems as if there is much evidence that some of First Samuel and Second Samuel, significant portions of it, come through Nathan, 
the prophet. So he is also an author for us. So while we don't know much of his origins, we do know as he originates before us, we have a prophet called of God who is not perfect. And it becomes abundantly clear that he is not perfect, but he is committed and he is pliable. He is teachable. He is surrendered as a preacher, an advisor, an author, a counselor and as a leader himself. As he works in the life of of King David, the leader. And we have these three key texts. This is one of them and three key events that take place from that. We begin to understand something not only about his origin, but also his calling as a prophet in these particular roles that he fulfills. Now, what's really interesting here is we see him right out of the chute again. If, as I think the evidence shows that Nathan is involved in the composition by the spirit of God of Second Samuel, he willingly shows you his warts and pimples. I mean, the first time we're dealing with him, he makes a mistake. It does not. It is not cast as a sinful mistake. It's one of those to be human is to err. And he makes one. He loves David. He's been with David to this point. David arrives at this point and look, and I think this is the way Nathan took it. And I can understand why he would take it. He takes it this way. David says, who am I? Look at this house. I have been in David's house in the Jebusite city of the original Jerusalem before it expanded up to the Temple Mount. I've literally been in this house and to not to get too graphic, I have actually seen David's toilet that has been examined and has been documented back to the days of David because of some leftover materials in that toilet. And I'll go no further in explanation. And uh, so you're able to see his toilet in the David's palace, which is down below the Temple Mount. David now sees what he has and where he is, and God's given him victory. I want to build a house for the Lord. That's what I want to do. I want to build a temple for the Lord. You can almost hear him probably talk about some of the materials that will later be referenced in when my reading of the text for you in that moment, which was cedar, a house of cedar. I want the cedars of Lebanon to be there. And that's exactly what one day will end up there. And then when David, I don't know whether it's a formal meeting or an informal meeting, but he tells that to David, Nathan and says, Nathan says, go for it. Go do what you want to do. Sounds great to me. And so I don't think he's just rubber stamping or anything. I think he hears David. He hears David's heart. He says, you know, why shouldn't God have a place? The Ark of the Covenant has never rested anywhere but in the tent. And the Holy of Holies has never been anywhere but in the tent of meeting. Let's have a place that's worthy of our God or at least make some worthy statement about our God. David, do it. Well, then God doesn't go to David, he goes to the prophet. Because God works through the preaching of his word. Now, please remember, when we use the word prophet and prophecy in the Bible, prophet is the office, prophecy is the act. Prophecy means to speak truth. Speak forth truth. Sometime that is foretelling of truth. Sometimes it's forthtelling. And the prophet ministry is a predecessor to the preaching ministry of the New Testament. Prophets and teachers at Antioch, meaning the same thing as preachers and teachers. Now, in once the First century is done, and through the apostles, you have the canonization of Scripture. Any forth foretelling is done 
because the scripture is complete and the last living apostle is instructed. Let no man add or subtract to the words of this book. And so it is finished. So revelation through prophets and apostles has ceased through prophets who gave prophecy that is God's revealed truth through them that becomes canonized in the scripture by the inspiration of the spirit. And then later apostles who speak prophetic word, giving to us the word of God as it is being revealed to us. Now, folks, this is important because we are people of the book. You don't know there's a trinity without the Bible. You know there's a God without the Bible. Because the creation declares the glory of God. But you would never know he dwells as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You would never know his redeeming work to provide a satisfactory atonement on your behalf to save you from your sins without God's revealed word. So we have the Old Testament, which is the New Testament concealed, and then the New Testament, which is the Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament, as uh, I, I think I, I think it was Augustine who said this, it's like walking in a dimly, it's like walking in a lavish room, dimly lit, stumbling around it, and you know something special. And then when the New Testament comes in Christ, somebody cuts on the light. Oh, it's majesty. Oh, that's what you meant by the ark. That's what you meant by the prophets. That's what you meant by the priest. That's what you meant by the tabernacle. That's what you meant by the temple. That's what you meant by the rainbow. That's what you meant through the sacrificial offerings, the burnt offerings, the thank offerings, the love offering. Oh, it was all coming to Jesus. Now look at the exposition of it. So when the last of the apostles died, then the last of divine canonical revelation has been given. And we now have the word of God. Praise God. We have his inspired, infallible, sufficient, inerrant word. Now what we pray is for the Holy Spirit who gave the word of God through the prophets and the apostles as the foundation for us. Now what we pray for is the Holy Spirit to do the work of illumination. Through the succession of the office of prophet, which is preaching and teaching, and that's not foretelling truth. We already have all that truth. It's forthtelling truth. It's expounding truth. It is proclaiming, preaching the word of God, taking the sacred text that is profitable and bringing the teaching from it, then the application. And that is exactly what Nathan becomes an example to us. Not only does God use him as a fourth teller prophet to give us more scripture, but he also is a foreteller. He is a preacher of the word that he has that God has given to him. And what he finds out as a preacher is your last your last statement in the life of David was wrong. Nathan, if I wanted a house I would order one. And when I'm ready for a house, I'll order one. And when I decide who will build my house, I will identify him. It is not David's calling. And we'll find out multiple reasons why it's not David's calling. David will not be the one who builds my house. There will be many reasons in his life, in his kingdom, in his kingship. And in his family that I will not use him to build my house. But I am going to have a house, but it will not be David. But I am going to make a covenant with David. And my covenant is, is I am giving my kingdom. My kingdom is going to be given to him and through his succession. And I'm going to make his son to be the successor. His son will be the king. And I will give his son. Now, that son is not going to be perfect. And I'm going to have to discipline him with enemies from without and with his own people from within. I will have to bring stripes. I will have to bring discipline against him. That's what I'm going to do. But I have given my kingdom to David and to his son. More than that, 
with David and through his son, I am going to give a king that will establish a, an eternal kingdom, a forever kingdom, a kingdom whose throne has no end. And he will reign forever and ever and ever. And that covenant is what I'm making with David. That's a monumental moment in the history of redemption. What you have in the Bible is when man falls into sin, God begins to unfold the covenant of grace with Adam with a promise. I'm going to give a seed to the woman that will destroy, that will, that will um, be at enmity with the seed of Satan. He will have his heel bruised, but he will crush the serpent and the seed of the serpent. And then it's unfolded to the covenant with Noah. And then the next step is the covenant with Abraham. And the next step with the covenant to Moses. And now God takes another step in his covenant. And it's the covenant with David. The Davidic covenant. And so he's telling Nathan, here is my covenant with David. I'll give him a king through his son. With his son, I'll build the house. But not with David. That is not what he's called to do. I have, can I say it kind of irreverently? I don't mean to be, but not blasphemously. What he says is, look, I did not need a house to get him out of Egypt. I didn't need a house to get him through the Red Sea. I didn't need a house to get them through the wilderness. I didn't need a house when I appointed judges to shepherd them. And I didn't need a house when I had to deal with the wrong-directed kingship of Saul. And I don't need a house with David. And I don't need David to build the house. I'll tell you who will build my house. But you tell David, he's my king. And his son will be the king. And then will come a forever king through this line. That's what he says to him. And now what I love is the way the scripture deals with this. Nathan doesn't have an argument with God. You can almost see it. Oh, think I was wrong. So what does Nathan do? He's a good preacher. He, he acknowledges my first proclamation to you, uh, David, it might have been well-meaning, well-hearted, but it was wrong-headed. So I was wrong. Here's what God just revealed to me in this vision. Here is the covenant God is making with you. And he goes back to David and he corrects himself. Well, I have to say to you, I know this probably doesn't mean as much to you as it does to me, but... There was a reason why I've made a promise I would never write anything that gets published until I was 40. I didn't want to embalm anything with print and ink. I had enough things I had to go back and ask forgiveness for and change. Rather than to embalm some and then have somebody have to go buy the books and burn them somewhere. Nathan got it wrong. And while we're not given any details, he repented. Now, there's no sense that Nathan got it wrong because of a sinful rebellion against God. It was just a thoughtless pronouncement in the name of God as a prophet that was wrong. And when God corrected him, he made the correction. And he was not fearful to go back to to David and said, I mean, can you imagine going back and saying, well, David, I was wrong. You were said you're going to build this house for God. And I said, do if it's in your heart, go do it. Well, this is what God revealed to me. And here's the covenant he's going to make with you. And in that covenant, he, he's not going to, he says he doesn't need your house. And he's not going to let you build that house. But he is going to bless your seed. And he is good through your son going to establish this kingdom. And so he comes back and he does that. What do you see immediately in this prophet? Humility. But you also see boldness with conviction. When God tells me something and corrects me, not only was he humble enough to change and repent, 
But he's bold enough and with conviction that once I got God's word, I'm going to go back and tell David what he needs to hear. Then you also see him changing from a thoughtless response to now guided by God's word as a preacher and prophet. He now gives wisdom and insight to David. He does that with clarity. Folks, I... uh, I think that kind of sets up the very next way that we want to take a look at him. Would you take a look and go with me to chapter 12? Go with me to chapter 12. And then in chapter 12 in verse 1. I'm not going to take time to go back over the other. You know what happened. David walked out to his house again in Israel. I've been to where David's house is. I've gone and looked over the cliff. Now, no longer are there houses, but you can see readily what David looked at, how he looked over. And by the way, having whether Bathsheba, uh, whether she should have been there or not is another issue. But David knew where not to go. He didn't have a computer to beckon his eyes places it shouldn't be in. But he knew where he could stand and see what he shouldn't see. And the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life took over. And you know the story. Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, is a brave and loyal and wonderful soldier. And as he uh, enters into a relationship of intimacy with Bathsheba, To cover himself in a future pregnancy and all of those possibilities. He brings Uriah back so he can say, well, he was back and Uriah Uriah doesn't cooperate. Uriah's a good soldier. When he comes back, he just waits for the king. David says, why don't you go home? But he doesn't. So David's idea of creating plausible denial disappears. Out of the loyalty and faithfulness of Uriah. That doesn't stop David. He figures out a way to send an order to put Uriah at the point of the battle where anybody that's there is going to die. And that's what happens. And Uriah dies out of the conspiracy birthed in the heart of David. Now comes Nathan. Look at chapter 12 and verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, King, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. Intimacy of this man with his one little ewe lamb. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his flock of herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come up to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. There is a man who had everything that takes the poor man's lamb for his own use. David's anger was kindled immediately. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold. That was the law of God. Whenever you stole something and repented, you paid it back fourfold. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. 
I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. He said, is your sword, David? Well, you can say, no, 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 I was back here in Jerusalem. Well, first of all, David, you'd never got in trouble if you'd have been out there with your army like you should have been. And then secondly, yeah, you might have been here, but you set up the plan and it was as much as your sword as it was the Amorite sword. You're guilty. And then he says to him, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. Not just Uriah. You despise me. Folks, can I just ask you to just put in the back of your mind? Do you remember a man by the name of Joseph who served the Lord in Potiphar's house as a slave because of the because of being sold into slavery by his brother? Do you remember that? Do you remember Potiphar decided I'd like to have him? She tried to seduce him and he wouldn't do it. Unlike David. Who set up his own seduction. Joseph said no. And then when she tried further, do you remember what Joseph said? How can I sin against God and against your and, and against Potiphar, against your husband? In other words, Joseph saw what it was. This was ultimately not just a sin against her in adultery. It would have been a sin against God and it would have been a sin against her husband. And then as he. Uh, as he and then, of course, we got repaid by false charges and put into prison, but he never regretted it. He did that which was right because he had the right perspective. I was thinking about Ike's prayer. He had the biblical GPS in place to navigate that decision. And as he navigated that decision before the Lord, he did the right thing for the glory of God, not David. David sinned against God. That's what God's telling him. You sinned against Uriah and you sinned against Bathsheba. That's what you've done. How did God tell him that? Through a preacher. Who was the preacher? It was Nathan. And then Nathan not only says this to him. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Since you use this sword through your conspiracy, then that sword will never depart from your house. This sword shall never depart from your house. And then what? And then he goes on to say, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives and bring uh, your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. In other words, in broad daylight, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And then we go into the, the, the son that dies. So what does he say to him? He says, this is what you have done. And he brings before him his sin. What does David do? David confesses his sin. And he agrees with God. I have sinned against God. Then what does Nathan say to him? He says two things to him. And I wish that preachers would again say these two things. David, praise God for your repentance. Praise God for your confession. God has forgiven you. But there are still consequences. And here's going to be the consequences. In your family. In your kingdom. And with your child. 
This is going to be the consequences. Rightly so, we tell people, believers, if you falter and willingly sin against God, always know he's ready to forgive. But that doesn't mean there aren't consequences on this side of eternity. The illustration I've used for you, do you mind if I use it again? If I get drunk, that's a sin. I get in a wreck, I get my arm cut off, I repent, I ask God to forgive me. Will he forgive me? Hello? Absolutely. But when I wake up the next morning, I don't have the arm. I know men who have made terrible, since this is a sexual sin, let me stay there. I know men constantly, and women, particularly drawn into situations with men who make sinful choices and think it's done in secret, when in reality, it's never ultimately. We sin personally, but it never stops privately. It has repercussions. And repent and God forgives. Praise God. But the wife is gone. The children are struggling. Whenever we marry the temptation with our desires and we sin, then we can repent and God will forgive. But we ought to warn people, if you sow something, you're going to reap something. Can you be forgiven and restored? And can God even use this in special ways in the future that astound us? Yes. But don't, but always walk carefully before the Lord. And David didn't. He got forgiven. And we're blessed in an extraordinary way that we wouldn't have blessed if he hadn't sinned. But that doesn't mean the sin was a good thing. His son, I believe, went to heaven. That's why David said, I pled for him while he was alive. And then when he died, I put on the robes of festivity. Why? Because where he's gone, I'll go to be with him. So his covenant child would be in heaven. But he wouldn't have the opportunity to raise him. In the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Yet in the midst of all of this, David comes to a full repentance And he writes what I believe is the greatest statement that distances worldly sorrow from godly repentance other than 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And that is Psalm 51. Read. I wish I had time. I don't have time. Read. Wait wait a minute. The clock went off. That means I can go as long as I want to, doesn't it? Clock's gone. Praise the Lord. Amen. Well... Okay, I got this one. I don't have time. I don't have time to do Psalm 51 for you. And he writes the greatest statement of repentance. Nathan comes to him and he says, you know, there's this man. He's got everything. I mean, he's got everything. Everything is in his power. And over here is this one guy and he's only got this one little ewe lamb that he loves. He's intimate with. He's devoted to. It means everything to him. And the man that's got everything decides that this man and his one lamb, that he ought to have that. So he takes it from him. And when he takes it from him, then the man is now without that. David, what do you think we ought to do with that man? David says, Kill him. First of all, make him pay it back fourfold. Then kill him. David, you're the man. God gave you a kingdom. God gave you Saul, his possessions, Saul's concubines. Gave you everything. You got it all there with you. He gave you all these riches. He's now giving you peace from all your enemies. And what have you done? He even gave you a loyal man like Uriah, but you took it. You took his wife, and so here's going to be my discipline in your life. And that was your sin. And David, of course, repents, as we know. And he writes out the glorious statement of repentance you find in Psalm 51. As long as I was silent about my sin, my bones... Roared 
within me. And it was like having the summer cold, the fever heat of a summer, like a summer cold was aching within me. Then after he writes this repentance, he writes another great psalm. What was the next thing he wrote after Psalm 51? Don't write, don't say Psalm 52. 32. How blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. Whose sin is forgiven, whose transgression is redeemed. And to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. What a glorious psalm. So praise God for how God takes the crooked stick to do things. And God teaches us a lot about David, a man after God's heart. But here is David. He was a great sinner. Praise God. David was also a great repenter. But how did David know he was a sinner? And how did he know he needed to repent? God raised up a preacher. And that preacher would be replicated. Not only would Nathan go and come before the most powerful man who had gotten rid of Uriah and with one stroke could get rid of Nathan. But Nathan came with boldness, with courage, with humility. And he came and he brought a story. He drew David into it. He got David identified with it. And then he brought to David, thou art the man. And he'll be followed by other prophets like Daniel who'll do the same thing to kings. Two empires and five kingdoms. Uh, Two empires and five kings. And most of all, he'll be replicated by John the Baptist. Who will go before Herod. It is not lawful for you to have her. Now, please notice their preaching. They don't, Nathan, John the Baptist, they don't go before kings without the word of God. But they don't shy away from even kings. They'll bring them the word of God. They don't want to be simply in the court. Preachers who want to be in the circle of power are no longer prophets to the king. They become the jokers of the court. But these men spoke the truth. God used Nathan. John the Baptist tossed him his head, but he spoke the truth. He preached the word, and it's never loved to withhold the truth, even to kings. Nathan stands before us as a marvelous and challenging example of such preaching. And always convicting to me. He didn't go up to David and say, you know, David, have you ever wondered about the fact that you might be engaged in sexual immorality? And Or John the Baptist doesn't go in and say, you know, this thing, this incest deal and all this stuff, you know, have you ever thought about the improprieties and dangers of unsafe sex? It's not lawful for you to have her. Because you can't get saved by grace until the law brings you to the end of yourself. When it exposes our sin. And that's what Nathan does. And he'll be followed by men like Daniel and John the Baptist and other prophets. One other passage, and I've only got five minutes left, I think. So would you please turn, I don't even have that, turn with me if you would, in conclusion to this last text. And I'll only, I'll only just uh, give you a little distillation of it. First Kings chapter one. And you find out that, uh, can I just tell you what's happening in chapter one? Adonijah has gone out to set up his own kingdom and David has become even more inept. And in his old age, is disconnected. He doesn't know what's going on, but Nathan finds out what's going on. So slip down, if you would, to verse 9. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite the three the, the council of, of King David. Who was that? That was Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, 
and the mighty men of Solomon, his brother, and uh, or Solomon, his brother. And another that's missing is Zadok, the priest. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Silon, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggath, of Haggath, has become king and David, our Lord, does not know it? Now, therefore, come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son, Solomon. You understand if this thing is accomplished by Adonijah, then he'll kill Bathsheba. He'll kill all the rivals. He'll get rid of the queen mother and he'll get rid of, <coughs> of Solomon. So Nathan says, let me warn you. And that, of course, Nathan's life is in danger. And he says, let me warn you. And then he says, what, how should you handle this? Here's what you do. And he says, now, therefore, come, let me give you advice that you may. Now, here's the prophet advisor, counselor, that you may save your own life and the life of your son, Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, did you not, my Lord, the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are still speaking with the king, I'll come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went. Went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag, the Shunammite, was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king. The king to the king, and the king said, "What do you desire?" She said to him, "My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon shall your son shall reign before me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king. Although you, my lord, the king, did not know it, he has sacrificed oxen. Well, let me just go on to say, she shows him that he has said." himself up. And then he's verse 21. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my Lord, the king sleeps with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. In other words, he'll kill us. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan, the prophet came in and just as he had agreed to. And he comes in and said, here's Nathan, the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my Lord, the king, have you said that Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne for he has gone down and he has sacrificed the oxen, the fattened calf. And then he goes on to make uh, clear to him what has happened. Of course, David, when he becomes aware of it, takes the steps needed to to be taken so that Adonijah is done away with and Solomon is put in place. And here again, we see the, the wisdom of leadership. Not only is he a prophet that's bold, but he is a counselor that is bold. He knows how to handle this. He doesn't simply go into David. Why? Because Bathsheba's life and Solomon's life are at stake. And God has already said that the kingdom is going to go through Solomon. And David has already sworn that it is going to go through Solomon. And out here, because of David's inattention, is someone who has set themselves up as king. And so the way, how does he handle it? He handles it strategically. He comes and he says, Bathsheba, you go to him. And when you go to him, just ask him, did you not swear that Solomon would be king? Did you swear that Adonijah would be king? Well, Adonijah has set himself up as king. That means Solomon and I, as soon as you go to be with your fathers, we will be put to death. And then Nathan, as agreed, comes in to verify what Bathsheba is saying. And he makes it clear. And David, now corrected, now enlivened, now advised, through a process that doesn't rest on Bathsheba or Nathan, but together comes in with evidence and affirmation. He then responds. And as he responds, he sets in motion that which would make sure that uh, that, in fact, uh, Solomon would be king and therefore would be delivered from those who would usurp his kingdom. So what do you learn from Nathan? Just a couple of things. Number one. Would you pray that Nathan the prophet will be reproduced in preachers? And you pray for this one. Who will be humble so that when we're wrong and God corrects us, we will repent. Who will be courageous when God's word comes to us, we will proclaim it even to kings, even to authorities, even to the politically cultural elite who would seek to eradicate the gospel from our land. They will not because the preachers will again become God's militia who will go forth to preach for Christ. 
And we will be willing to speak to governors and kings and any and all in authority. Would you pray that more Nathans will be raised up? Would you pray that the fullness of God's whole counsel will be given so that people no longer look lightly upon sin? That will not diminish grace. Because when you see sin like it is, that just actually enhances grace, which is greater than our sin. But don't diminish sin and its sinfulness in order to extol grace. Would you then, would you then pray that God would give preachers who can preach sermons that are bold, direct, but are digestible? <laughs> Good illustration. When people tell me you don't do illustration, I say, well, what in the world does Nathan do? What did Jesus do? You ever heard of the parables for crying out loud? <laughs> I mean, that they're digestible, that you can understand them, that stories are there, that are faithful to the word, that let light in. So pray for preaching that is digestible and bold and direct and humble and faithful. And that makes use of questions. <laughs> I love it. David, what do you think we ought to do with it? Kill him. You're the man. And would you pray that God would bless the Nathans that he raises up so they'll be counselors, advisors, that they will be um, preachers, and that they will be faithful, and that God will change the course of history through those who are faithful to the proclamation of his word. And would you pray also that as God raises up such preachers, he will surround them with those who will encourage them. There's another whole story, study, and I don't have time. I did, went over on this one. But praise God for Beniah. He always stood with David. Praise God for Zadok. I mean, Nathan. Praise God for Zadok. He always stood with Nathan. And praise God for Nathan, Zadok, and Benaiah. They always gave the truth and love to, Nate, to King David. I love the study of David. Look at these other people in the background. God used them, and he'll use you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together in your word. Uh, God, um, please help us grow in grace and encourage in our fellowship with one another. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Would you please help them to encourage the Nathans of today through intercessory prayer and words of encouragement as well as words of challenge. And Holy Spirit, just like you worked in Nathan, work in those today who speak forth the truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205 776 5200.